0: You listen to On Being, you love digging for deeper meaning. I think of NPR's Invisibilia as a kindred podcast to ours, exploring the invisible forces shaping human behavior. And for the next few weeks, we're excited to share sneak previews from their terrific new season. You can hear Invisibilia on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett
1: comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org.
0: I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cuts. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Naomi shihab Nye. Listen to our produced show with her wherever you find your podcasts and, as always, at OnBeing.org.
1: Yep, she's right here. Hi, here I am. Hello. Nice to be in touch with you. Yes.
0: Naomi, this is Krista Tippett.
1: Hi, Krista, how are you? I'm
0: good. I want uh, I want to hear you say your name the way you say it before. Okay, so should, sure, so yeah. should, right.
1: but so many people are in shock that I get to talk to you today. My <laughs> friends... In different cities, who are your fans? (laughs) That you have so many fans everywhere. I say my name Naomi Mm -hmm. Shehab Nye. Okay. Well, that's very, that's a lovely thing. Yeah, people just adore you and they all have their favorite programs. And (laughs) really, you don't want to get them started talking about you because they'll go on. No, just kidding. They'll go on for quite a while. Oh, well, I'm... It's beautiful. Thanks for the work you do. Yeah.
0: Oh, you too. It's been just wonderful to kind of steep and wallow in your work these last few oh, days. that's so sweet of you to say. Yeah. Thanks. And um, everybody here who's been reading you is also a huge fan. Um, oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. Thank so you. That's great. All right. So let's stop this mutual admiration society here for a <laughs> minute and get down to business. What? Okay. <laughs> okay.
1: There is a little fan. I hear it as well. Wait. Yeah, we have air conditioning noise. Uh, let me let me see if we can turn it off for the duration of the interview. One moment. Get warm. Yeah. Also, maybe I'll get the microphone a little lower. Oh, okay. Yeah. Also, well, do you by it, a chance have a little water? Oh yes. Okay. okay. Thanks, sorry. I should have brought some. Sorry. <laughs>
0: Um, do, Chris, do you need any kind of sound check you need? Okay. 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 Tell, just um, tell us something, something banal, like what you had for breakfast.
1: Let's see. For breakfast, I had two eggs with spinach from a garden I picked. Mm. My friends, the best gardeners I know, are in Hawaii for three weeks. So they gave me uh, an invitation to pluck from their garden during their absence mm. This is a great pleasure. <laughs> so uh, we're having a lot of green things right now at home.
0: There's nothing better than fresh-grown mm. spinach. Even though, and oh, I know, and it's one of those things that's so much more disappointing when you buy it at the store.
1: It's that's right. It's just nothing. It's nothing not the same. same. And last night we had these butter lettuce salads from their garden. And just you know, you didn't even need hardly to put anything else in the salad. It was so delicious. Yeah. Just that beautiful, beautiful lettuce. So, thank you. Mm. Texas gardens are very happy at this time of year.
0: <laughs> I, I grew up in Oklahoma. I don't know if you know that. Oh, so, okay. it's yeah, you know, nice. it's di- it's not Texas, but it's it's that it's it's that it's a very close culture. I think.
1: I think it is, mm-hmm. and I'll actually be in Minnesota next week. So oh, you will. Yes, I'm visiting a group, the Wisdom Ways Group. Do you know
0: that? Um, the, I think it's at uh, Saint, University of St. Catherine in um, I think so. In, St. Yes. In Paul. Well, if you so. find yourself with time or the inclination, come over and say hello to us.
1: Oh, you're we're, so sweet. We're yeah, in Minneapolis, which,
0: which here no. is kind of like, you know, you don't have, to, cro- you have know. to cross the Mississippi River, but it's actually
1: not that far. Right. No, I know. It's lovely. I love both those places.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, think about that. Okay. Chris has given us the thumbs thumbs up.
1: I'm very sorry that I seem to be having some kind of allergy attack the last few days. Okay. Well, I don't so hear I've it in got, your voice, and so okay. feel
0: free. You know, we're we will um, we'll edit this, and we can edit out sneezes and sniffles Good. and okay. Okay. Thank so if you, you needed to pause, do that.
1: Okay. And um, thank it's
0: you. no problem at all. And I have, I have literally let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six of your books spread out in front of me (laughs) and so i may have to pause to like find a page Um, oh that's fine and i don't Um, and i yeah so we'll just uh we'll figure out what the rhythm of this is how much talking um i i'm kind of thinking at the very end i will ask you to read did you bring uh transfer with you I did and kindness because yes. I think I'll ask yes, you to read those. Or not I yes. mean I'll, a few from transfer and then and then I may read I may read some of your words to you from from the other books. Well, that um, would be lovely. And did
1: you have anything you'd like me to mark and transfer, um, especially so that I don't have to look for it here?
0: I. You know, let's get let's see where the conversation goes because I I okay. wrote down too many. So let's see where okay. we kind of end up. And then it's not a problem for you to look at them. Okay. Then. No, no. Let's see what – and I'm, I think I'll – I'm also going to be curious, you know, after we've talked for an hour, like what feels right for to you to read.
1: Sure. Right, right.
0: Um, That's okay, good. great. Then I think we can just embark on this conversation. <laughs> um, Thank you. I um, I always start my interviews by c- inquiring about the religious or spiritual background of someone's childhood. And I understand that question of, you know, the spiritual background of your childhood. Uh, I think our understanding of that and imagination about that probably evolves as we grow older and look back. But I just wonder where you'd start reflecting on what that was in your life.
1: Sure. So just dive in. Yeah. Oh, I felt very lucky as a child to have open-minded parents. And I knew they were open-minded because they were unlike any other parents I met, my friend's parents. Um, I also knew that they didn't practice the the religions of their upbringings, either one of them. Mm -hmm. So this fascinated me as even a little child. And I would ask a lot of questions. There was no sense of a taboo subject. They were both devoted to uh, learning and discussing and finding harmonious similarities uh, between people, between faiths, and um, I felt very lucky. I was conscious of that. It wasn't something that, you know, took me till I was an adult to realize this is a precious thing. Hmm. Um, They both had a warmth about their own... um, desire to raise open-minded children that they would talk about to anyone, to other people's parents. Um, My father had not really had a difficult time telling his family that he didn't want to practice Islam. He said, I will respect it, but I don't want to practice it. And they had accepted that. My mother's family, on the other hand, had been more hard-hearted about her Mm. rejection of their German-Lutheran-Missouri Synod background. Mm, yeah. And so she had had suffered, you know, kind of a, a familial rejection. You're, you're in trouble. You're a bad person, therefore. Um, but this was something both of my parents could talk about with each other and with their children, you know, that people are raised in all kinds of different ways. And if it doesn't feel um, meaningful to you, maybe you have to search more. Mm -hmm. You have to keep searching. Um, So I was raised attending both Sunday school at a unity church, uh, attending the Vedanta Society every Sunday, (laughs) which is, you know, philosophical Hindu sect in St. Louis, a very fascinating place for a small child to be, (laughs) Um, attending Methodist Bible school in the the summers. Mm -hmm. My mother thought it was important that we know the literature of the Bible, the Mm. references of the Bible. Uh, but And then our father would tell us about Islam, and so I knew about that path through him. But I never felt there was a compulsion to be any one thing. And I was a religion major in college. (laughs) Of course you were. (laughs) Yeah, because of my appetite for this topic. And I was fascinated to study more about Zen Buddhism, Mm -hmm. which... um, Appealed to me very much from the beginning,
0: and of course, your your father and his family had become refugees in 1948 when when the state of Israel was created. um, Yes, Palestinian refugees, and you know you you've written in places you you said it this way that your father seemed a little shell shocked when you were growing up, and um, I mean, obviously, he was an amazing, wonderful person, but, I, but I, I also wondered if that shell shock, which it seems like you were observing as a child, was mm. also a, in the spiritual background of your childhood, kind of expansively understood?
1: Well, I think my father, he had a very fair quality. He wanted things to be fair, and, and it was hard for him to understand cruelty of any one group to another group of people. And so to sort of— he. To rebound from that, you know, not to be carrying the weight of any bitterness, not to be angry, but always to be trying to find an equilibrium. I mean, I think that would be an um, essence of faith involved in that, but also just sort of general daily politics, the ways human beings treat one another. Mm. Uh, Why does one person feel more entitled than another person? How can there be a chosen person and an unchosen person? Um, all the ramifications of uh, and mysteries of that were were very much around him, and he was always trying to talk it out or feel it out with other people. what did they think about it hmm. how could we how could any anything help what would help
0: and you've it seems like you became a writer at a very young age, like
1: you I were, did, and I feel very lucky to. Have been exposed to literature, you know, to have had not only a mother who read to us, a father who told us stories. Uh, my own obsession with going to the library every every Saturday of my of my childhood mm. and having stacks of books around me at all times, um, but also that feeling that it that that the literary world was our world, the wor- world of human beings, and mm. anyone had the. Possibility of participating in that world, and so it wasn't as if I was waiting for a bigger, smarter moment to come along in which I could start writing. I just started writing, you know, the minute I could. Right, you and were like seven, six, five. I was six, seven. I was six when I started writing my own poems, and seven yeah. when I started sending them out. And um, and just today, um, some students I was talking to in a Skype class in. Kuwait, how much I love the modern world, (laughs) Mm -hmm. that we can do these things. I was with these students for two hours, and I feel like I'm going to think about them for the rest of my life. But one young man asked me, how were you brave enough to do that? What gave you the confidence? He said, I've been trying to run a publication here at our university campus, and I can't get my friends to give me their writing. They're not brave enough. What Mm -hmm. gave you confidence? And I think just having you know that sense of voice well other people have done it that's what we do if you know words if you compose y- you might want to share them because they'll have a bigger life if you do that so you know i certainly wasn't thinking about a career i never for one second thought of myself as having a particular talent i just thought of myself as having a practice you know if you have a practice of writing then you have a lot of pieces of paper on your desk and <sighs> You could share them if you chose to, and it seemed, it seemed more exciting or um, illuminating to share them and see what happened next than to just keep them for myself. Well, it it seems so. I'm very interested in general in this question of you know
0: what what poetry works in us, but I think even that question itself um, uh, suggests you know has holds the implication that poetry is. Something separate, something distinct, but it seems that in wow. your sensibility, you know, you really you 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 see it as very organic. I mean, there's, I think it was in, um, in 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 some of your writing about your writing for poems by children. You you said, I think I do think that all of us think in poems. Um, I do. Which is I another, you know, that would also lead you if, you, if that's the way you see it, to not see it as so special right. that you were writing things down and sharing them. So right. say a little Th- bit more about us thinking in poems, like how well, you see that Well, thank you manifest. so
1: much for even noticing that wherever it was. And, um, <laughs> and, and I, I think that is very important, not feeling separate from text, feeling sort of your thoughts as text or the world as it passes through you um, as a kind of text the story that you would be telling to yourself about this street even as you walk down it or as you drive down it um, as you look out the window the story you would be telling uh, it always seemed very much to me as a child that i was living in a poem that my life was the poem yeah. and in fact at this late date i have started putting that on the board of any room i walk into that has a board um, i just came back from Japan a month ago, and every classroom I would just write on the board, you are living in a poem. And then I would write other things just relating to whatever we were doing in that class. But I found the students very intrigued by discussing that. You know, what, what do you mean we're living in a poem, or when, all the time, or mm. just when someone talks about poetry? And I'd say, no, when you think, when you're in a very quiet place, when you're remembering, when you're savoring an image— When you're allowing your mind calmly to leap from one thought to another, that's a poem. That's what a poem does. And they like that. And a girl, in fact, wrote me a note um, in Yokohama on the day that I was leaving her school that has come to be like the most significant note any student has written me in years. She said, well, here in Japan, we have a concept called yutori, and it is spaciousness. It's a kind Mm. of living with Mm. spaciousness. Um, and she gave all these examples. For example, like it's leaving early, early enough to get somewhere, so that you know you're going to arrive early. So when you get there, you have time to look around. You have a patience of a moment to look around. You're not always racing because when you're racing, you can't look around and you can't really absorb the atmosphere. Or, and then she gave all these different different definitions of what yutori was to her. But one of them was, and after you read a poem, just knowing you can hold it, you can be in that space of the poem and it can hold you in its space and you don't have to explain it. You don't have to paraphrase it. You just hold it, hmm. and it allows you to see differently. And I just love that. I mean, I think that's what I've been trying to say all these years. I should have studied Japanese. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe uh, that's where all our answers are. <laughs> Japanese. Well,
0: uh, well, and so another way you, you you do talk about poetry is, and you know, and I, so I, I do also think about your Arabic ancestry and and the reverence for poetry that is in is in those cultures and. And you, yes. you, you talk a lot about your father and his reverence for just the power of words and language. and you know, and, 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 and here's a way you, I feel, have appropriated that. You say poetry is, is a form of conversation. And it seems to me that a lot of your poems are I say, holding a conversation or opening right. conversations that aren't actually happening out there in the culture or in the narrative of kind of how we're telling the story of our time.
1: I hope so, Krista. I really hope that is true. And I think that the, the the essence of a kind of exchange is what poetry is interested in too. I mean, the, the feeling that um, you're not battered by thought in a poem, but mm-hmm. you, are, you are sort of as if you're riding the wave of thought, as if you're... Um, allowing thought to enter, you're shifting, you're changing, you're looking, you know, kind of a slant, as Emily Dickinson talked about, you know, carrying something kind of on the slant, tipping the head. Um, Mm. You are in a sensibility that allows you that sort of mental, emotional, spiritual interaction with, with everything around you. I think it's very, very helpful for mental health, actually. I mean, I... I really wonder sometimes um, what it would be like to live without that apprehension, you know, that you could have a thought, shape a thought, change a thought, look at the words in a thought, that you could take a word and just sort of use that word. I think I said this like 40 years ago in a poem use a single word as an or that could mm-hmm. get you through the days just by holding a word, thinking about it differently. Um, and seeing how that word rubs against other words, how it interplays with other words, uh, you know, that it, there's a luxury in that kind of thinking about language and text, but it's very basic as well. I mean, it's, it's simple, it's invisible, it doesn't cost anything. Um, I was reading someone's blog the other day. She works with people who are in prisons, and she said she uses poetry because in her own life she found that it helped her stay sane more than anything else. And she also said, it's free and it doesn't have any side effects that are negative. And I, I like that. Thinking about poems as if they could have, like, you know, like a drug reaction or something. No, you could listen to a poem. and You may not love every poem you listen to. That's fine. But um, but it's not going to hurt you.
0: Yeah. Did, did you know that, um, that, and you probably know, that there's this, there's a... There's a uh, – Walter Brueggemann is – I'd say he's he's just – he's the great uh, preacher and thinker about the prophets, the tradition of prophecy in the Hebrew Bible. He's,
1: he's right, Christian. Right. I've heard about him. Yes, and I've read.
0: Them. He said, you know, that prophets that we um, – that even in the tradition he grew up in, kind of liberal Protestantism – there's all this attention to what the prophets did and how they lived and, and, and also the the fierceness of their words, but not, not the poetry of their words, the aesthetics. And, you know, he said the prophets are always poets and it is in 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 speaking in ways that um, force people to reframe the way they see that, that that is in their power, that they're not politicians. And I think we kind of tend right. to turn prophets into politicians, right. but it's.
1: It's, it's I think that's con- interesting, yeah. And, and and to focus on their poetry instead yeah. is, is a very different sort of embrace of things they said. Yes. And I, I'm always fascinated when a politician does decide to quote a poem, very rarely, very occasionally, um, how people tend to like really embrace that, whatever metaphor they use, like they want to hug it and talk about it and like, oh, we needed that. Like, it's given them instant refuge. And even sometimes it's not a very fascinating metaphor, but, you know, you think how that that kind of speaking, so much speaking, um, occasionally poetry could help it.
0: Yeah. Well, Brueggemann also says, you know, a line like, I have a dream, which is just, you know, the language we remember from Martin Luther King, you know, is... You know, it's it's a line of poetry, and of course, yes. all kinds of other things were going on, and what he was affecting in the world, and and what he was fighting for. But the, it, that 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 ability to be a poet also was part of what made him so powerful and kind of rose above the fray.
1: Oh, that's lovely. Yes, I think that's true. You know, carrying the dream, carrying something. I think many times poems are are. About containment, like in ca- carrying, what they carry, what part of us they carry, or something unspoken they carry. Um, I was asked recently if if poets feel frustrated because everything is, after all, unsayable, and I said right, no, not yeah. at all, because I think poetry comes closest to the, you know, to the the ineffable, and 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 we appreciate that. We don't have to say everything, but poetry leads us very closely to the to the edge of so many things we would like to think about. Yeah. In quietude, in solitude. I
0: you know, um I think that in, in your reflections after 9/11 um, and of course you were reflecting as an as an Arab American, um you were also very acutely um precise about about why why human beings turn to poetry in crisis, and uh, you know, just echoing what you just said, here's something you said. You know, poetry slows us down, cherishes small details. A large disaster erases those details. Poetry helps right. us open to experience, reopen, stay present.
1: And it's so hard to absorb or imagine you know, the the enormity of disasters. I mean, even when I read in the paper about 27 people here, 52 people here, yeah. whatever the sorrowful count, it's like that number remains abstract to us. But but if you talk about one person in that group or, or tell us something personal about them, everything changes. And, and you know, if we could only keep imagining that intrinsic... Uh, individuality of each thing that's being lost, each thing that's being um, forfeited because of violence. You know, there was only one thing, this continues to fascinate me in that letter to any would-be terrorist that I wrote after 9-11, there was only one thing that really seemed to make American readers angry. And it fascinated me what it was. It was my reference to the violence in our films and our media and our culture, mm-hmm. promoting for entertainment's sake uh, through violence, using violence as a kind of allure—that you know—I was asking the question in the piece: Is there something wrong with that? That the same people are so horrified when violence happens. Um, how many movies have they seen that included scenes like this in recent years? Or how are they able to stomach that? You know, on their television sitcom. And I was. I was so intrigued. That was the only thing that made people mad. Like, how dare you? What did you think that, would
0: pay, What did you think would make people mad that you were
1: saying? Well, I thought people might object at that moment to talking about the humanity of Middle Easterners. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought people might say, "Don't tell us anything good about them because they've just done a horrible thing." These 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 nineteen men or whatever they've done. A horrible thing, and and so we don't want to hear about your cousins and sitting down at the table and your grandmother and what she suffered, or your father, how he walked, how he behaved, You know, I thought people might object to, you know, how dare you talk about your sweet relatives at a time like this. But no, the one thing they wanted to defend was the violence of American entertainment media. Mm, mm. (laughs) I thought, wow. (laughs) Maybe the problem is greater than I realized. (laughs) Um... Let's see,
0: there's so many things I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, so so you asked this, there's there's um, 19 varieties of Gazelle. Was was yeah. this written, was this published after? It was pub- n- published in the 90s, I guess.
1: It, no, it was published after um, September 11th, but some of the poems in it uh, preceded I see. Okay. September 11th. But the poems that related to the Middle East... Um, had been sort of scattered throughout my work, somewhere in magazines, never had been in a book, and so my editor Virginia Duncan thought that at that moment, that fraught and tender moment, that it might be good to gather some poems together that connected to the Middle East and 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 make this book. And some of the poems are written after, um, in the year after um, 9/11, yeah. but. But some were written before, and um, it was it was interesting to me to put them together and kind of see them in a different light, see them as a family of poems. And you know, I've always written about different places in the world, so it was it was not as if I was just trying to come up with a book that would. Um, and I've continued since this book to write many poems relating to that part of the world. But yes. um, but I felt at that moment um, maybe it was important to to gather them together. I mean, just uh, the
0: last, I think these are the final lines, or almost, no, yes, before the postscript, the, the final stanza of the last poem. I call my father, we talk around the news, it is too much for him. Neither of his two languages can reach it. I drive into right. the country to find sheep, cows, to plead with the air. Who calls anyone civilized? Where can the crying heart graze? What does a true Arab do now? I I, um, I love, you know, you said a minute ago that poetry allows us to hold hold words and hold things that can't be said. And I also love how poetry allows us to hold questions. You can have oh, I questions. do too. And that, you know, I, I imagine that question by way of poetry, what does true Arab do now? Uh, that's a question that's been out there uh I, I mean, I imagine in our culture for Arab Americans, it's it's this question that that we're dwelling with all of us collectively, but especially people,
1: and and especially identity. people who cherish, uh, you know, an awareness of of another culture, whoever they are. And yeah. I think that's it's so strangely appealing these days to large numbers of people. I I'm, I don't know who they are. I don't understand where they're coming from. Um, to not to respect someone else's culture if it doesn't uh, look just like yours. And that's exactly the opposite of the way that I grew up and the way I like to think about the world. So, um, and the way I feel like the majority of people would prefer to think about the world. You know, the minute you place yourself above, what does that do to others? So yes, I am am, uh, horrified by the ease with which people... May belittle one another these days, as if that were a reasonable thing to do. Um, you also, you also
0: published um, in the Flag of Childhood poems from the Middle East, and it looks to me like this was maybe also published before two thousand one, and then again in two thousand one. Does that
1: make is that right? Uh, well, first we had published a larger a gorgeous anthology edition of The Space Between Our Footsteps that was mm. a big hardback. That's such a lovely yeah. phrase, The Space oh, Between Our Oh, it us. is. But so. There. It's so beautiful. And the title poem is Beautiful by Natalie Handel, and, uh, a Palestinian-American poet who lives mm. in New York City. And um, it was a wonderful book, a very well-received book. It contained gorgeous paintings by uh, Middle Eastern artists and and then the publisher i think they brought out the paperback after 911 because they wanted it to be more available to classrooms where um, so it was a very cheap paperback like 2.99 or 3.99 something and um and i was glad that it found a lot of friends as well you know the idea that we need to hear one another's voices now more than ever and you know i've always felt that way all my life since early childhood i've i've wanted to hear someone someone else's voice especially If they came from a place where, you know, I didn't have any history, I didn't know that place, I wanted to hear what would they talk about, how would they talk about it. That would be fascinating. Much much more interesting than studying the gross national product of another (laughs) nation. The kinds of things we always studied in school, I used to think, why are they focusing on this stuff? But you,
0: I know we haven't mentioned this yet, you also have this fascinating perspective of having... Okay, let me get this right. Your if your father you mostly grew up in Ferguson, Missouri, which are where you Yeah, father, I did. It's crazy, right? right? Where your father landed after he his family emigrated yeah. eventually. And mm. and what, so how long were you there? Until you were twelve or? well, I lived
1: in Ferguson until I was fourteen. Fourteen. And yes, and I was born in uh, Greater St. Louis, my mother's home place. My parents met in Kansas. Yeah. A state which really would uh it was so random that they even met. I mean, it's like meeting someone at a bus stop practically mm-hmm. because neither one of them had a history in Kansas. They just happened to be there long enough to meet and get married mm-hmm. and um, and then moved back to St. Louis where my mother had grown up. But they moved out to Ferguson because it was sort of a a little bedroom community to greater Saint, downtown St. Louis where my mother had grown up. and And it had big trees and kids could go off on their bikes and ride around all day and you know, there was a, a more a rural quality to Ferguson, hmm. and there was also, um, you know, despite a sense of history, the houses in Ferguson were old, and it's a it's a wonderful little community. But there was a sense of uh, separation, of course, in the fifties and early sixties. That right. is what we've seen. You know, the fruits of that come come to be over the years, and. Um, yeah, to think that Ferguson is now a household word yes. representing, you know, injustice is really shocking to those of us who grew up there. Um,
0: but, you know, when you, you wrote this wonderful piece about growing up in Ferguson and then your family emigrated back to Palestine in 1966 mm. for a little while and, right. and, and the echoes between those two places that you called home, the echoes between those two places and their separated communities—
1: Right, it, 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 that was a fascinating um, parallel, and so I couldn't resist writing that piece, just you know, meditating on both places when they were in flames that same summer, and the sorrow yeah. of of injustice, you know, very alive in both of them, yeah. and the power struggles in both places, um, and I kept wishing my father were alive because I thought he would never believe that Ferguson has come into the. The international eye in this way Mm. at the same time as the people of Palestine are also continuing to struggle. So um, it's mysterious how these these power structures unfold, isn't it? And how we're willing to accept them and uh, allow them to prevail without questioning them and uh, Something I've started saying over the past few years that kind of helped me think about it is, um, you know, I have so many uh, Jewish friends, both in the United States and other countries who would agree with with this, but the idea that there could not be a sort of alliance between big power countries like the United states and and Israel- Palestine that was more equivalent. Um, why do you have to have only one friend in the region? That's like the dark side of junior high. In junior (laughs) high, you learn that you could probably have two friends that are not exactly Mm. alike, and you might survive, Mm -hmm. and in fact, you'd be a much more interesting person. Why couldn't the United States have two friends? Why couldn't they really look at what oppressions the Palestinians have been living with all these, what, 68 years, and ask better questions? You know, Mm. I think... I think the politicians are just too too quick to be bought off or whatever they do, lobbied. But if they would listen to the majority of their own people as well and everywhere, maybe they'd be more balanced. My father was always saddened by the imbalance. And as a journalist, he had to report on it so many times.
0: Yes, and, and yet you always write about your father insisting on hope to the end. Yeah, fiercely hopeful.
1: Yeah, because he said what else? What else do we have? I mm-hmm. mean, if we're going to if we're just going to give up and say, okay, we crumple, We have no more hope, we're victims, we're bitter. How much fun of a life is that going to be for anyone? Mm. For our children, you can't pass that down. So, um, yeah. He maintained a joyousness despite. But he, you know, here's another way
0: you've written about what I feel is kind of a philosophy behind your poetry and um, you know and and you wrote this again about in the, the aftermath of two thousand of, of September eleventh but but it applies to all these kinds of examples we've been talking about um, you said you know this sense so many people had um, that everything has changed and and you wrote of the necessity of really questioning and interrogating that feeling. And you wrote, we can continue to remind ourselves of what is important and try to live in ways nourishing for human beings um, and continue to nourish our ability to grow in our perceptions to more than we used to know, to empathize with distant situations and sorrows and joys. That doesn't have to change. Um, I... I have felt so much that that was the great lost opportunity of 2001, of September 11th, for Americans who had momentarily had an experience of what so many people around the world have all the time of frailty, fragility, vulnerability in their strongest fortresses. Um, Right. But, but, you know, that, that... that quiet, which I, you know you're saying that, that a poetic mindset would you know give you that space um, to take that in.
1: Well, and you know, there were so many people I think in the time after who tried to, to empathize more more deeply and who demonstrated against going to war in Iraq, for example. I managed to be in New York City. On the day of the 500,000-person march, I mean that was the final count I ever heard against going to war in Iraq, and it was incredible. I'd never been in, you know, a march of 500,000 people through the streets and being with all these people who kept saying, you know, we don't want to go kill other people. Look how our city felt. We don't want to. We don't want to to bomb other cities. We don't want to hurt civilians. We don't want. We don't want to be part of this and. And the feeling of being uh, completely ignored yeah. was very haunting at that time. You know, you thought, well, why why is this on the back very back page of the New York Times and the tiniest news item imaginable that this march even happened? Why isn't this a front page headline? This is important. We're trying to have our voices be heard. And that's one of the things our country is famous for. So why are they not respecting this? And um, I think there were, experiences like that all over the world, feeling, you know, we we don't want to do to others um, more violence, what's been done to us at that time, and forgetting also how, how many things our country has been involved in, you know, and there are just so many mysteries about, you know, people wanting to um, presume their pain has more of a reality than someone else's pain and you know, I think all the holy holy persons of all backgrounds and faiths have always called upon us to empathize in a more profound way, you know, to stretch our imaginations to, to what that other person might be experiencing. And it sounds so basic, but but these days when you listen, you know, to the loud voices, mm-hmm. you wonder why... What's happened to that? What's happened to the the awareness that uh, we don't have to be vindictive and uh, continue, continue on in a cycle of revenge and violence? And every time Yoko Ono pays to have that full page in the New York Times, the war is over no. page. I'm yeah. fascinated by that. I mean, just I, I think, wow, I'd, lo- I'd love to. I'd love to hear her talk about why she continues to do this because we so much wish it were true. We'd like to be able to say, yes, it's true. I actually kept that postcard that said "war is over" in that same font on my wall for years because I so much wanted to believe it. And yet, you look at the world and it's not true. And you think, you know, is this just is this manifest positive thinking? Well, okay, from- but, but so here's what
0: I think your contribution is. I mean, you look at the world, you look at the world in terms of headlines, and it's, it's, you look at the world a certain way, and it's not true, from a certain angle, from a certain direction. It seems to me like one of the things you, this, that, again, like, what is poetry? puts poetry's place I mean, It seems like one of the things you draw out uh, is, you know, just noticing, paying yep. a different kind of attention. To things that um, are not quite as e- apparent to to the eye. Um, I mean, starting with, I love this, uh, the poem, I don't know, what book was it? Please Describe How You Became a Writer. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you know that? Do you have it by heart?
1: Or? I have it right here. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Would you like me to read it? Yes. It's very short. Yeah. Uh, please Describe How You Became a Writer. Possibly I began writing as a refuge from our insulting first-grade textbook. Come, Jane, come. Look, Dick, look. Were there ever duller people in the world? You had to tell them to look at things? Why weren't they looking to begin with? Um, that was actually written after you know some students wrote me a survey about being a writer, and that was the first question on their survey. And so I just wrote them that and I thought, oh, I like this by itself. This is good. <laughs> I mean it's true too. Yeah. yeah. And right. Yeah. And so so I think you unfold that on different levels.
0: I mean, somewhere you you talk about being a seven year old poet making petite discoveries. I love that phrase. Yeah. And again, like oh, noticing, thanks. right? Right. I mean, hmm? sorry.
1: There's no, this, no, I like I like the word petite.
0: Oh, it's love. And like, like you know, there's a poem you wrote about an onion. You know, I could kneel and praise all small forgotten miracles, uh, like crackly, crackly paper peeling on the drainboard, pearly layers in smooth agreement. The way knife enters onion, and onion falls apart on the chopping block, a history revealed. Um, but then in, in in words under words. You know, there's another, it's kind of another layer of this. I mean, you're looking at a childhood picture album and you say, I think of the invisible pictures between the pictures and under them. What was said that made us look that way at just that moment, the gleam of particulars. I mean, this is a way, again, we're talking about poetry, but we're also talking about a way of moving through the world.
1: Mm. Thank you for noticing that. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I... I feel it's important to have uh, favorite writers and people whose work you follow through the the trajectory of your life. And I think of people such as William Stafford and W.S. Merwin Mm -hmm. as having been real guides to me. I mean, they have carried me forward all these years since I first read their work as a teenager. And um, and W.S. Merwin's uh, Merwin Conservancy now in, in Maui that is working to... Uh, protect and um, uphold his his beautiful land in which he's created this palm refuge of palm trees. Um, To me, that's like a physical, tangible um, place of particulars. But I think of something in an essay from, from William Merwin, and he's lived in many places in his life. He lived in France, England, Mexico, Pennsylvania as a child. But he has a line where he says, I learned from my neighbors everything they would tell me. And I think that sort of appetite for knowing, that curiosity, what grows here? What do we need to do? How can we improve this soil? Um, it's, that's the way that he lived his whole life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and right now, you know, his conservancy is we're trying in, this, in his spirit to, to conduct, you know, a future plan for this land so that many people will be able to continue to participate in it and glory in it. But I think that's what poetry does for our places wherever we are. You know it allows us to to cherish what we're given. Mm-hmm. I I know your poem
0: Kindness has been really important for many people. Um in fact there's a there's a friend of our show who's visiting today who's listening in on this interview because she's such an admirer of your work, and somebody sent her that poem, "Kindness," um, in a moment of tragedy. I know, uh, you know, one of those moments when, like, as you wrote, where a large disaster threatens threatens to erase details. Um, mm. And she said it was a lifeline, and I, I, I see, like, reading around that a lot of people have experienced it that way. It's interesting. That would you kind of tell, because the backstory to that poem right. doesn't sound like the circumstances under which you would write a poem about kindness. And, right. Um, so I'd, I'd love for you to just tell that story well, um, it, and then maybe read it also.
1: Well, my greetings to your friend there and to all people who have felt this poem had something uh, that they could use. And I, I really feel amongst all my poems— that this was a poem that was given to me. I was simply the secretary for the poem. I wrote it down, but I honestly felt as if it were a female voice speaking in the air across a plaza in Popayán, Colombia. And my husband and I were on our honeymoon. We had just gotten married one week before here in Texas. And we had this uh, plan to travel in South America for three months. And at the end of our first week, we were robbed of everything. And uh, someone else who was on the bus with us was killed. And he's mm. the Indian in the in the poem. And um, it was quite a shake-up shake of an experience. And we managed to get back to Popayan. And, and a man came up to us on the street. We were trying to figure out, OK, what do you do? What do you do now? We didn't have passports. We didn't have money. We didn't have anything. Um, where do what should we do first? Where do we go? Who do we talk to? And a man came up to us on the street and was simply kind and just looked at us, I guess could see our uh, disarray in our faces and just asked us in Spanish, you know, what happened to you? And we tried to tell him and he just stared at us. He didn't give us anything. He didn't offer anything, but he listened to us. And he looked so sad and he said, I'm very sorry. I'm very, very sorry that happened in Spanish. And he went on and then we went to this little plaza and I sat down and all I had was the notebook in my back pocket and pencil and um and my husband was going to hitchhike off to Cali, a larger city, mm. uh to see about you know, getting travelers checks reinstated. Remember those archaic things? <laughs> yes, I do. Travelers Thank checks. Yeah. I haven't seen one in years. No. And um so this was also a little worrisome to us because you know suddenly we were going to split up. Yeah. I was going to stay here and he was going to go there. And we didn't know how long it would take. This was the pre-cell phone era. There was no way to yeah. contact one another. You know, The whole thing was very sketchy. It's the kind of thing parents really worry about when their kids say they're traveling <laughs> internationally. Yeah. So, um, so we certainly didn't want to call home. But uh, as I sat there alone in a bit of a panic, night coming on, trying to figure out what I was going to do next. Um, this voice came across the plaza and spoke this poem to me. Spoke it. And I wrote it down. I was wow. just the scribe. So did you want me to read it? Yes, I'd love for you to read it. And yeah. let me just
0: say, before you read it... I, I, and I do have I,
1: to take a little break here to blow my nose. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh.
0: I, I, want, I love it. I love it for many reasons. But one of them is that um, kindness is... You know, I think words are fragile too, right? Words especially okay. words get used too much and right. kindness has been on a few too many bumper stickers, but but it is it is an everyday expression of the greatest virtues and it's kind of an instantaneous gratification. Um, and you you really I feel like in this poem you you give it the, the, the true complexity and nuance that it has.
1: Thank you. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things, feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness, how you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. Hmm. Um, and what I remember about you know, taking the notes for that poem and it really didn't change too much over the, you know, I didn't rewrite it too much um, was that the minute I finished writing it down I was like okay I've taken this I've taken this stenography course here. I've written this down. Now let me look at it. What is it? Um, I knew what to do. I knew three things I could do to make my, to, you know, survive the next few days or however long it was going to take till I saw my brand new husband again and we figured out what was next. And so I had, I had a, an engine for movement. Hmm. You know, I knew hmm. How I might be able to get a little money, to get a little food, where I might sleep that would be safe. You know, I figured it out just by focusing. And one thing I've I've tried to say to groups over the years, groups of all ages, is that you know, writing things down, uh, whatever you're writing down, even if you're writing something sad or hard, um, usually you feel better after you do it. Somehow you're given a sense of okay, this this mood. Um, this sorrow I'm feeling, this trouble I'm in, I've given it shape. It's got a shape on the page now. So I can stand back, I can look at it, I can think about it a little differently. Uh, what do I do now? And very rarely do you hear anyone say they write things down and feel worse. You know, they always <laughs> right. say, I, I wrote things down, you know, this isn't quite finished, I need to work on it. But but they agree that it helped them sort of see their experience, see what they were living um and that's definitely a gift of writing that is above and beyond you know any sort of vocational you know how much somebody publishes it's an act that helps you preserves you energizes you in the in the very doing of it
0: do you think it you know? works as well if you do it on your
1: notes function of your cell phone you know, I don't. I don't know because I've never done that. I've only written three things down in the notes function, yeah. but I do have to say those three things have helped me. I'm uh-huh. glad they're still in there in the phone. Yeah, uh, yeah.
0: I don't know. I mean, but, I've started doing that just because so. my phone. I have, but of course, I grew up like you, always with a notebook. And actually, right. I interviewed Mary Oliver last year, and uh. she said. Um, and by the way, she also described the poem "Wild Geese" not as a voice coming to her, but basically as something that was just given. And she said, right. "You know, there are maybe two yeah. or three, but that one, she wasn't even yeah. thinking." But that's um,
1: beautiful, and that poem is so important well, to it's so all, many like people. Like kindness, it's right. a poem that saves right. lives. It's a poem that it's saves a poem lives. that becomes like an emblem poem for yeah. people, right? Yeah, it is. And yeah.
0: um, but but she always carries a notebook, right? I mean, yeah. that's one of her trademarks. And she said to me, "You know, if you if you don't have a notebook." You know, you don't get it again. You have to write things down as they come.
1: That's right. You. And so Absolutely. I've started carrying a notebook again after 20 well, years. I think that's great, and uh, and you can carry one at any age. You're never too late to never to too start old to carrying start. A yeah, yeah. And, and it's helpful because you can just flip it open, and also you can see it in a way that doesn't involve like a battery, and you know, yeah. it's, it's it's somehow tangible in a different way. So I would I do encourage kids to to. Uh, to do that. Um, Last week, I was in a classroom in Austin, Texas, where a girl who was apparently going through a really rough spell at home wrote a poem that was definitely tragic and comic both about kind of everybody was yelling at her in the poem, um, like from all directions. She was just kind of suffering in her home place and Trying to find peace, trying to find a place to do her homework. But she wrote about this poem in such a she wrote this in such a compelling way that when she read it, and read it with gusto and, and joy, there was such joyousness in her voice, even though she was describing something that sounded awful. Um, when she finished, the girls in her classroom just broke into wild applause, and hmm. I saw her face, she lit up. And she said, man, I feel better. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, that's this is such a, a graphic example of putting words on the page. I saw her kind of gloominess when she came into the room. Mm-hmm. Suddenly she's put these words down. She's acknowledged what's going on, what she's facing. She's read it, and people feel very connected to her, and they're cheering her on. Um, and so she stuck around. She made me a copy of the piece. She stuck around, and we talked about it. And uh, that feeling of... Of being connected to someone else when you allow yourself to you know, be very particular is another mystery of writing.
0: Yes. I also also the mystery of writing that you that in the act of doing it, you write things you didn't know you knew or you didn't know you thought.
1: Absolutely. That's such a gift.
0: Yeah. I think that happens in a good conversation too. I do too.
1: I really do. And when you, when you hear, someone speaking in a way that suddenly just opens, cracks open more light on on some topic, or yeah, it's amazing. Oh,
0: here's something I know. I was just looking. I've got. I was looking at amaze me. This book that you did, poems for girls, which yes. actually. Echoes what you just said, you C C word you say. Um I think you're just talk you're 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 writing it's more like prose, but of course it's poetry too. You said I if you have a voice and aren't afraid to spend it. What was the title of this? What I learned when I was twelve or something. I'm afraid I don't have that book with yeah, me. Yeah, that's so. okay. I have it. I wrote um We say, if you have many voices and let them speak to one another in a friendly fashion, if you're not too proud to talk to yourself out loud, if you will ask the questions pressing against your forehead from the inside, you'll be okay. If you write three lines down in a notebook every day, and then in parentheses, they don't have to be great or important. They don't have to relate to one another. You don't have to show them to anyone. You will find out what you notice. Uncanny connections will be made visible to you. That's what I started learning when I was 12, and I never stopped learning it. <laughs> right.
1: And, and you know, I think many people are encouraged to think you could write that little and still gain something from it. Yeah. You know, that you don't have to be spending an hour and a half to three hours to five hours a day writing to have a meaningful experience with it. Um, it's a very immediate experience. You can sit down and write three sentences. How long does that take? Three mm. minutes? Five minutes? And uh, and be giving yourself a, a very rare gift of of listening to yourself, you know, just finding out when you go back and look at what you wrote and, and how many times we think, oh, I would never have remembered that if I hadn't written yeah, it down. Yeah, that's right. Or, when and how did that even occur to me? I, I sort of like it this week, and it could help <laughs> me. And now, I, now I want to connect it to something else. Um, everybody finds that out, and you know, just to encourage others to do it without a without a, a big massive goal in front of them at all times. You, you've said that you
0: you read your son to sleep, and you also read him awake.
1: I did. Yes. So what would
0: you do? You'd go in and sit by his bed.
1: Well, when you know when he was around 13 he said, "Mom, you don't have to read to me anymore. I can read for myself." And I said, "Yeah, I know all your all the other parents I know stopped when their kids were like 8 yeah. or 9 and I'm still reading to you." But he was he was sweet and gracious about it and we did like that reading time at mm-hmm. bedtime and so I paused for a while, maybe a year I wasn't reading to him and and then uh, this this farmer showed up in Oklahoma in a workshop and told us all that he had come just to listen. He just wanted to hear everyone read their work. And we thought, wow, look at this, the wandering audience. He doesn't even (laughs) want to participate. He just wants to listen. And he said, no, listening is participation. It's very important. And he talked about being a child and being awakened every day by his granddad, who read to the kids in the house uh, as a wake-up call every morning, Mm -hmm. stood in the resonant hallway outside their bedrooms and read poems and my brain clicked. I thought, this is what I'll do for the rest of the time. Our son is at home. I'll waken him every day with reading poems. So we did that for years, and I think he really liked it. You know, people I read uh, a lot were people like Robert Bly, Lucille Clifton, Frank O'Hara for some reason, Chinese poems, Japanese poems. Um, And we would occasionally talk about the poems. Later in the day, he'd bring something up about one of the poems I'd read, and You know, but I never did it so that we could have a particular conversation. I just did it because, you know, all parents have a moment in the day when you need to get your kid up if they haven't gotten up already. And most kids like to loiter in the bed there. (laughs) So um, it was a pleasure to me to hear poems in the air first thing in the morning, be saying them to, you know, our beloved son. And hopefully he'll do that to his son who turns one month old tomorrow.
0: Wow. Yeah. I, I like that, too, because as much as my, my my kids are also great big now, but the as much as, as many kind of lovely memories as I have of reading at the end of the day, you're so tired at the end of the day. And it's, yeah. a, it's a nice idea to think about reading and poetry starting the day when you're fresh and when you would take it with you.
1: It's beautiful. It feels beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you feel better. You, the reader, feel better. And... Uh, There are also so many other places where this could be appropriate. Um, I met a school principal some years ago, and he said to me, oh, I've always loved poetry, but I can't really use it because I'm just a principal. I said, what are you talking about? Where's the intercom in your school? He said, it's in my office. I said, okay, well, (laughs) do you have announcements? Yes, every morning. Well, why don't you read a poem to start off the day for the entire school? And, you know, I, I sort of forgot about this encounter with him and. A couple of years later, I went to that school and I thought, "Wow, I don't know what's going on in this school." I had forgotten that that's where he was, but these kids love poetry. And finally, I, one of them said to me, "Well, the announcements every day, our principal reads us a poem, and mm. so we, you know, we carry poems with us every day. We have them in our heads." Mm. And uh, and one thing interesting was he seemed to have needed a little push since he didn't see himself as a poet, that it would be okay for him to read a poem? Well, why not? And also he needed a little push that he didn't have to read the whole poem. Like if you wanted to read just a stanza from Ralph Waldo Emerson or just, you know, here's a stanza from Walt Whitman, that that was okay. You didn't have to read the entire poem if you didn't have time. Um, He liked that, but I think he just needed the the, uh, encouragement. Mm. You know,
0: bef- before we before we um, kind of draw to a close and also hear some more of your poems, I, I, I want to touch a little bit on your father again. Um, w- would you read the—just on this matter of refugees, which is yeah. so resonant now in the world. It is. In a new, uh, d- just desperate way. Um, You know, there's something in me that feels like we're we're kind of – it's happening, especially if you're in America, it's happening over there, kind of. um, But I wonder if when people look back 100 years from now, if we're still around at 2016, if this won't be the thing that was changing the world that's going to shape the rest of the century. Um, And it seems to me that you – well, first of all, there's the the opening page um, of – transfer, where you, you're kind of dedicating the book to your father, but you, you, you start the, the passage that starts, Refugee, Not Always.
1: Uh, yes. Refugee, not always. Once a confident schoolboy, strolling Jerusalem streets. He knew the alleyways, spoke to stones. All his life he would pick up stones and pocket them. On some he drew faces. What do we say in the wake of one who was always homesick? Are you home now? Is Palestine peaceful in some dimension we can't see? Do Jews and Arabs share the table? Is holy in the middle? Yeah, I... Again, I... And it also... Yeah, go oh, on. go ahead. Well, it starts, our father who was always our father, not always our father. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think... Many times the way immigrants, people look at immigrants with such a a, a sense of diminishment as if mm-hmm. this person is less than I am because they've left their country. Well, I actually think they're more than we are because they're braver. They've gone some other place. They have to operate in another language. How easy would that be? Um, you know, mm-hmm. if I had to go to China today and start living in China and doing everything in Chinese, it would be very, very hard. Yeah. So... Um, you think about the bravery of these people and um, and the desperation with which they're trying to to find a, a realm of safety for their families and and just the basic safeties that we take for granted every day we get up and um, I yeah. don't know I, I don't know how how a world with so many resources and so many religious traditions and um, good hopes, how we can keep doing these things to one another in the world that create refugee populations. I mean, it just seems outrageous. Why is that happening so much?
0: Yeah, I think that's another one of those questions we have to sit with if yeah. we can. <laughs>
1: yeah. I mean, here's right.
0: just some lines from another the history poem in the book, Transfer. We were born to wander to grieve, lost lineage, what we did to one another— on a planet so wide open
1: for doing. So wide open. So much we could do, always. Yeah. So many surprising moves uh, a person, a country, could make that might be imaginative, that might, you know, encourage positive behavior instead of negative.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: And... I don't know, maybe the magnitude of this moment call forces us to rise to the occasion. We'll see.
1: Human beings do that every once in a while, too. I hope so. Yeah. I hope so, and I hope, you know, that that mysterious rising to one's better self, uh, which was a concept that really perplexed me as a child, my mother would say, especially if I'd been in some kind of mischief at school, which occasionally happened because I wasn't always focused on jack and uh, who <laughs> those are these people? boring dick and, dick and jane yeah the boring dick and jane i was <laughs> right. trying to get away from them all the time and uh so i i would get in a little trouble and um and my mother would say to me you know her charge to me be your best self and i would think wow what is that self where is it where is it tucked away where do i keep it mm. when i'm not being it and are you your best self? Is my teacher her best self? And, you know, that was just <laughs> something intriguing to me that we had more than one self that we could operate out of. And um, and I think one nice thing about writing is that you get to encounter, you get to meet mm. these other selves which continue on in you, your child self, your older self, your confused self, your self that makes a lot of mistakes, you know, and find some gracious way to have a community in there inside mm. that would... Uh, would help you survive. Yeah, that for that poetry as conversation. That's right.
0: Writing is a way of having conversation between those different selves inside you. Yes,
1: that's nice. I think so. Mm. And um, and that's a big thing. I mean, that's not to be no. underestimated. That it's important to do that.
0: This probably won't be in the show, but I just want to note it because I mean, you, you you write about so many places you go, and 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 that the word gravity is important to you, and I, yes. it seems to me it's a big word for you, and it seems to me it's often related to a sense of place. I mean, I don't think it's always just about place, but how would you, how would you, what does that mean in your imagination?
1: Well, you know. Um my father felt like a wanderer, like he was always, you know, wandering around, and and I always felt like a wanderer. That mm. that, that we have so many places we could explore and learn about, um, but but I think you can feel all kinds of gravity, you know, wherever you are, every day in different ways, and and often through human contact you find your best gravity. You know, it's a mm. real conversation with someone. Um, just a simple, simple exchange of words can give you a sense of gravity. Um, taking a long... I've always loved the the uh, definition for contemplation, a long, loving look. And mm-hmm. when you take a long, loving look anywhere, you feel sort of more bonded with whatever you've looked at. Mm-hmm. You feel as if, you know, you recognize it, you see it, maybe it sees you back and and you're participating like in a world where it exists and so feeling that sense of, of gravity and belonging everywhere um, well, like is very important it, right? to me. That's
0: what you do, I think. You Claiming you claim it, it.
1: Uh, a kind of global passport, I guess uh-huh. it might be. And uh, this young woman in Kuwait this morning on the Skype class I did, she was saying, that she was Palestinian, had never been to Palestine, born in Jordan, had never seen Jordan, was taken to Kuwait as a baby and raised in Kuwait. Now she was a college senior. And she said, and and I don't belong to any of these places. Hmm. And I feel so like adrift and I'm not accepted in any of these places. And I said, you know, my hope for you would, th- would be that you could find a way to live, a way to be, a voice to use, where you feel at home in all of them. And um, I think there is a way to do that, you know, that she could find, you know, as readers and writers, we find a certain home in books and language and literature that, you know, like I hear a Mary Oliver poem and it's as if I've been her neighbor because I've read so many of her (laughs) poems, even though I've never spent a day in her town, maybe one day sometime. But, um, But so, you know, we we abide with one another. We we find uh, through images ways to be together. So my hope for that girl was not that she would feel, you know, alienated forever from all her places, but that she could find a way to be so much herself and let those parts of herself continue the dialogue through writing or through whatever she chooses to do. But I do think writing would really help Hmm. in her case, would help her... You know, to feel an identity.
0: So, well, yeah. So uh, that's fabulous. And that probably will be in the show. But when I said, <laughs> so what I said won't be, but it just flows perfectly. because So so you, you do that. You claim that gravity in places you go. And I just, this is the thing that feels personal. The one that I really loved was about the Isle of Mull in Scotland. Which oh. is a place that was really important to me at one point. Really? Yeah, kind of transformative, and and it just so it's I, a magic place, isn't it? It's magic, and then you it's know, it's totally knows, magic. And you captured that. You say um, these are just some lines of the poem you wrote there. Because by now we know that everything is not so green elsewhere, um, right? And it it's ends. The greenest no one, place
1: imaginable.
0: <laughs> no one saw we were there. And everyone who had ever been there stood silently in air, in the air. Where else do we ever have to go and why? And that just, I mean, the capturing, there's so much in there, the greenness, also the aching, the way we can fall in love with places and it doesn't mean we have to. It, it, like we can love them and and we can let them go, but somehow they stay part of us. And
1: absolutely, but then also, you don't have to land, own land there. You don't have to have an ancestor. But you from can Malt. you can
0: have that feeling. Like why would yeah. I ever want to be anywhere else? And that also exactly.
1: St- <laughs> but also yeah, this,
0: was, no one saw we were there, and everyone who had ever been there is standing silently in the air. It is one of those places, and there are many places like this in the world where
1: you feel much. these layers of life, profound presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and I think one of the great one of the great mysteries of human life is presence and absence. You know, how close we feel mm-hmm. to people we can't see anymore or how many people we can be with without feeling terribly close to them. And, you know, curiosity about presence and what it is, what it gives us, how we make it, how we could improve it. Um, and then in large collective ways as well as individually, but... You know, being in the solitude of Mull and being there with my son and mother, so three generations of us, for two weeks in such a remote, rural place, knowing no one and feeling so absolutely at home. Yeah. 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 It's it's an amazing, amazing experience to have that somewhere and to know you could keep having it in different places.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. So... Also, yeah, go have on. you ever been in a place where you like the word, the name? I mean, to mull, mull things over. Mull. It's such a great, well, and I went to the other
0: little islands there. Um, yeah, and um, uh, oh gosh, wait, how am I spacing out on the the island that Columbia, um
1: I no. Well, there's Iona. There's Iona Sky, is there, there's right? Stafa. Yeah, all those islands are there. Yeah, and they all have Stafa great. Staffa is names. the one that's only inhabited by birds. By Puffins, <laughs> right. and, uh, yeah. no, I mean it's a it's a magical part of the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um. your your refugee,
0: your Palestinian refugee father. You know, you you say, and this comes through over and over again. But as you wrote about him at the end of his life, after he died, you know, see, he loved the world. The world frustrated him endlessly, but he loved it and he hoped for it. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this beautiful line. He never gave up hope. Everything depended on mutual respect. The sadness of my father was a landmass underwater. Um, I want to ask you about the substance of hope for you.
1: Oh, thank you for for asking that. You know, right now, living in Texas, it's spring and everything is bursting forth. I mean, things we had even forgotten we planted, things we don't remember the derivation of. Where did that come from? All these things are popping up and bursting open and the air smells very sweet with this wonderful tree we have down here called mountain laurel. And um, there's kind of an intoxicating feeling of of spring opens, opens up. Like all these flowers open their faces to the sky and um, and then we have the amazing fields and fields and miles and miles of wildflowers in Texas. And just that, that sense of um, return, restoration, um, energy coming back out of the soil. And uh, so I think, you know, the, the gift of, of daily life, which you know, um, is our treasure as long as we live, hopefully they're are days with all their simple tasks and errands to be fulfilled, but also moments of apprehension that are greater than those tasks and errands Mm or moments of apprehension that come through those tasks. And, um, you know, people used to ask me a lot when I was younger, why do you write about um, common things, normal, like regular little things? And I said, well, what do you have in your life? I mean, I'm not living like in Star Trek. I I have common things in my life. (laughs) What what else do I have? Yeah. And uh, but I don't think that the things are themselves common. You know, I think I think it's a miracle that that anything works. You know, I still <laughs> look thinking about Flint, Michigan, a lot these days. I think I think about the miracle of plumbing a lot, and mm-hmm. and, the, and the and the all the mysteries we don't see under the soil, the pipes, the wires, the wireless connections. Now, I mean, just thinking about everything that's going on. <laughs> kind of like when you're a child fascinated by all the stuff that's going on inside your body and you didn't have to tell it to do that. Like I used to think my stomach is, I'm digesting right now. I didn't have to tell it to do that. I just did it. That's incredible. Or the heart beating or the blood rolling through the veins. And you think, wow, you know, all this stuff goes on. Um, that's not commonplace to me. That's, that's miraculous. It's amazing. And, um, so writing is a way that we're continually, continuously restored to that, and reading other people's work being restored to that. Um, I've been reading Ruth Ozeki, A Tale of a Time Being, which takes place between Canada and Japan and back and forth. Yes. And, Just, yeah, I love that book and I love her work and just the, I've never met her, never seen her, but, uh, but I feel so close to the sensibilities that she, she writes out of these characters and their questions and the mysteries, you know, one life to another. Why am I suddenly connected to another person I never heard of a week ago? Um, How could you ever feel too old or too dull in a world like that? (laughs) That's great. Wonderful. Um, Okay, well, let's. Let's. I'd
0: love to re- hear some of your poetry, um, and then you know when we produce this, we can weave it together a little bit more as well. Okay. Um, sure. Well, here are just some that I wrote down, and now I, I, I will confess I did not memorize all of them, so no, that's I fine. just know right now that I loved it, and I can't tell you. So one of them was. Um, let me just look at it. Oh. Two countries was one from words under the words. Oh. Cross that okay. line. Do you have yeah. you, yours with you?
1: Uh, I have. Yes, I do. Okay. I have you and yours. Um, uh, and uh, wait, the first one you said was two countries. Yes, yeah, I think I and
0: I that. don't, and you can't, and so I'll just tell you some of the others and, you know, you want one. So one of them was the sweet Arab, the generous Arab. Yes, I'd like
1: to read that Okay, one. yeah. Very and much, okay.
0: Yeah, so, um, and then others, like, um, I think these were all from Transfer, Member of the Tribe, Alive, Endure, that was...
1: Okay, wait, um, I didn't write down your list here. I'll read... Um, but I'm happy for
0: you also to throw some in that you feel, you know, they're for you feel good coming out of this conversation. No, they
1: all feel... I'll be happy to read any of them that you said. Ah, uh, okay, here's two countries. Skin remembers how long the years grow when skin is not touched. A gray tunnel of singleness, feather lost from the tail of a bird, swirling onto a step, swept away by someone who never saw it was a feather. Skin ate, walked, slept by itself, knew how to raise a see-you-later hand, But Skin felt it was never seen, never known as a land on the map, nose like a city, hip like a city, gleaming dome of the mosque and the hundred corridors of cinnamon and rope. Skin had hope. That's what Skin does. Heels over the scarred place, makes a road. Love means you breathe in two countries. And Skin remembers silk, spiny grass, deep in the pocket that is skin's secret own. Even now, when skin is not alone, it remembers being alone and thanks something larger, that there are travelers, that people go places larger than themselves. Mm -hmm. And um, Cross That Line is an important poem to me because I loved Paul Robeson so much as a child. I loved his voice. We Mm -hmm. had a record of him singing and You know, I wouldn't read his biography till I was an adult and know about what he suffered as a so-called communist and how his passport was taken away from him and he was not allowed to leave the nation, though he had a huge fan club in Europe and elsewhere. So I thought this was so funny when he did this. And I now own a a CD of this concert. Oh, Really? Yeah, someone sent it to me. That is some archival recording. Pretty amazing. Cross that line. Paul Robeson stood on the northern border of the USA and sang into Canada, where a vast audience sat on folding chairs waiting to hear him. He sang into Canada. His voice left the USA when his body was not allowed to cross that line. Remind us again, brave friend, what countries may we sing into? What lines should we all be crossing? What songs travel toward us from far away to deepen our days? (laughs) Of course, I think so many of them, so, so many songs, so many songs we could exchange coming towards us from everywhere. Now, you'll have to help yeah. me. Tell me, uh, from transfer, you um, said... Well,
0: and the, the sweet Arab, the generous Arab, is that oh, also Oh, yeah, you the used? sweet Arab, yeah, I yeah. have that. Uh, let
1: me think, I think I have that. Yes.
0: I feel like this is the kind of poem, this is the kind of language and writing that you offer into, you know, a moment where... Uh, where so many of our words dehumanize, and again, I you know come back to that that notion yeah. of yours that a large disaster erases details, and it kind of re reasserts the, the the beauty of the details and the necessity of the
1: details. I have to say, I really liked even putting the, the words into this title because to me they they emphasized you know a beauty of a culture that. I felt privileged to know from the inside, but I felt so saddened for all the people who didn't feel invited there, Mm -hmm. but they could be. Mm -hmm. The sweet Arab, the generous Arab, since no one else is mentioning you enough. The Arab who extends his hand. The Arab who will not let you pass his tiny shop without a welcoming word. The refugee inviting us in for a Coke. Clean glasses on a table in a ramshackle hut. Those who don't drink Coke would drink it now. We drink from the silver flask of hospitality. We drink, and you bow your head. Please forgive everyone who has not honored your name. You, who would not kill a mouse, a bird. Who feels sad sometimes, even cracking an egg. Who places two stones on top of one another for a monument. Who packed the pieces, carried them to a new corner. For whom the words rubble and blast are constants. Who never wanted those words. To be able to say, this is a day and I live in it safely, with those I love, was all. Who has been hurt, but never hurt in return. Fathers and grandmothers, uncles, the little lost cousin who wanted only to see a Ferris wheel in his lifetime. Ride it high into the air. And all the gaping days they bought no tickets for, spinning them around. Um, One of the sweetest, kindest countries my husband and I ever had an opportunity to travel in was Syria. Mm -hmm. And I think about how many people um, came and searched us out just to be friendly Mm -hmm. and take us on walks and show us... Mystical, magical things in their own domains, and um, you know, I knew I knew something of troubles that had happened in Syria before those days in the 80s when we were there. But um, to hear the news coming from that beautiful, historic country over the past few years has been just staggeringly painful mm. and grievous beyond compare. And constantly wondering what happened to all those kind people and how could anyone. Be doing this to one another. I mean, it's yeah. such a wreckage. For what? For what is gained? Yeah. Yeah. And I the, think you said some in transfer as well? Yeah.
0: Member of the tribe, which kind of takes that on in a different, uh, kind of yeah. different direction.
1: Yes. But I think an instructive one. Member of the tribe. And this that was a phrase that I found in the middle of a page, an otherwise blank page, in one of my father's notebooks after he died. Mm. So when the poem came out, it sort of came out in his voice. Um, And I don't understand, you know, everything about this at all, but it felt like his voice. Member of the tribe. Unfortunately, it's true. Like it or not. Educated or not. This is one of the many things Americans don't understand about Iraq. Kill a member of the tribe, the whole tribe now hates you. How could they not? The Americans think they hate you today, thank you tomorrow. Tribes are like tape recorders, they won't forget. Don't ask me how Arabs kill Arabs knowing this. As for Afghanistan, I don't understand that at all. I don't understand so many things. Still, we must tell what we know. That definitely sounds like my father to me. He Mm -hmm. spoke in short sentences always. As a journalist, he preferred them. He didn't have a lot of adjectives, adverbs, embellishments. But, you know, he would put something out there, like a straight little fact. Like, if you do that, this will happen. I don't understand it, but I'm telling you it will happen. (laughs) And often, as a journalist, he was forced... You know, to record, to write about all these things happening in the world. But of course, as a journalist, unless you're an op-ed columnist, you can't give your opinion about it. But I, I knew so many times when I would read his stories, he wanted to put some opinions in there. See, I told you this would happen. <laughs> right. You shouldn't do this. This is wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um. So
0: the the other two would maybe be alive and endure. Yes. Sure. What was the other last one you said? Endure. And was that the one you wrote about? Oh, endure the
1: Mahmoud Darwish. Yeah, sure. Darwish yeah. Yes. And alive is a funnier poem, which uh, which I like. I like funny. I like humor, but I, hopefully there's also some something resonant in it of another kind. Mm. Alive, dear Abby said someone from Oregon. I am having trouble with my boyfriend's attachment to an ancient gallon of milk still full in his refrigerator. I told him it's me or the milk. Is this unreasonable? Dear Carolyn, my brother won't speak to me because 50 years ago I whispered a monkey would kidnap him in the night to take him back to his true family. But he should have known it was a joke when it didn't happen, don't you think? Dear Board of Education, no one will ever remember a test. Repeat. Stories, poems, projects, experiments, mischief, yes, but never a test. Dear Dog Behind the Fence, you really need to calm down now. You have been barking every time I walk to the compost for two years, and I have not robbed your house. Relax. When I asked the man on the other side if you bother him too, he smiled and said, no, he makes me feel less alone. Should I be more worried about the dog or the man? (laughs) And the poem Endure was written to a great hero of so many of us, um, Mahmoud Darwish, the great Palestinian poet who died... Too early in his life, he, he died in Texas, actually, which was very shocking, um, where he had needed heart surgery. And uh, mm. he was such a valiant and, and gracious soul. And uh, so this poem is for him. I was hearing his poems all of my life, but I only met him uh, toward the end of his life and uh, had a chance to read read with him. Read his English translations and he read the Arabic. Endure for Mahmoud Darwish, 1942 to 2008. Mahmoud, so spare inside his elegant suit, stepped across stony fields, bent to brush the petal of a flower, didn't pick it. Closed his eyes though, holding one hand with the other, carrying the presence of blossom back to the page. For those who would never walk a field, never bend down, he found a way to carry the cry of a lost goat and the cry of a people without stumbling. Don't forget the streaks of tears mapping his soft cheeks, his large and somber glasses, the edgy poke of his thin shoulders, how he stood a bit to the side, hand over heart, his delicate hand on the stem of a glass, toasting the roads and the wandering winds. Mothers and fathers, enduring without justice, felt his dapper presence sustaining them, though they might have found it hard to name, the unchosen beauty of struggle and love mixing in a fresh tonic any might drink. His brilliance spilled in every language, though Arabic owned him. He became a perfect country, moving through the world, wherever he was, and he, its ruler, teacher, and prophet, he, its infinite dusty workers, pausing with shovels to stare beyond the ruin they could see, to what they will always believe in. You know, I have to say that um, one of the greatest days of my own life will remain the day the Lannan Foundation out of Santa Fe, New Mexico, gave Mahmoud Darwish the Cultural Freedom Award. Mm. And to be present, to see him accept that award with such... uh, He was so touched by that. Mm. Um, And and for me as an American, to see an American... uh, supportive group of literary wizards honor him in that way that was probably my most touching day
0: well Naomi this has just been such a pleasure and an honor and um an incredible way to spend an hour and a half and it will be wonderful to put it out into the world um so thank you so much is there anything you'd want to read that you
1: absolutely want to read or Oh, no, I'm fine. And Krista, thank you for your provocative and elegant questions. I loved hearing your voice and getting the honor to speak with you. And please tell Lily that I do not retain any negative feelings about Columbia whatsoever. <laughs> she
0: I, has been worried about that. So thank I know. you. Tell her thank no, you for no, sh- no, Thank you. So now we can all... Bring yeah, that I, know. To her.
1: I would go back there. I would love to see <laughs> Columbia again. And, okay. uh, and, and, and uh, it's just been such an honor to talk to you. Well, and I hope to meet you someday in Minnesota I or somewhere. I do,
0: too. Think about yeah, coming thanks. to see us. And thank you oh, again. Oh, you're so
1: sweet. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.